<laughs> I wasn't going to say two of them. Amen. We got uh, <laughs> we got more old Schofields around here than than you realize. Joel chapter number two. Joel chapter two. That was a blessing. Amen. Appreciate uh, Brother Brian and his wife so much, and everyone that helps around. Appreciate them. He told me, was it yesterday? You said that you're excited about a song, an old song that was written in the 1800s. Is that 1800s, yes. that song was, and a beautiful song. that was sung quite frequently in Billy Sunday's revival services. Amen. Isn't that neato? Great song. Appreciate it. Joel chapter 2. I'd like for you to notice just verse number 25. And uh, we're going to look at several verses throughout the book of Joel and through the message this morning. But I want you to notice verse 25. The first part, this is the Lord speaking through the prophet Joel to the southern kingdom of Judah. And he says to them, I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten. I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten. That's the title of my message. And so let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to our hearts. Father, we do ask that you would use the word of God to challenge us, to open our eyes, that we can see reality, what we are in reality, who you are in reality, what your will is for us, what our needs are and what you have to offer us. God, I thank you for the good song, the half has not been spoken, Lord, what you've laid up for them that love you and know you. Bless this hour, I ask. Give us open hearts and minds. I present to you anew in this hour, Lord, my body. I yield my will to yours. I ask that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit. You'd be the preacher this morning. We'd be receptive to what you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I do want to take a moment. If you have a, happen to have a cell phone, if you go ahead and unplug that thing. If you happen to have a baby, go ahead and plug the baby. <laughs> unplug the cell phone, plug the baby. And uh, really give our attention up here to the Word of God. And I know sometimes emergency comes up or whatever, you have to slip out. We understand that. But if it's not necessary, really ask that we keep our seats throughout the message and throughout the invitation. Just helps uh, the Lord to work. Less distractions, the better it is. And we appreciate that so much. The prophet Joel. I like these, what are called minor prophets, at the end of the Old Testament. You have a series of smaller books. They're minor, they're called minor prophets, not because they're less important than the major prophets, but they're smaller in nature. Their length isn't like Isaiah or Ezekiel, Jeremiah. Those are major prophets. The minor prophets are a little bit shorter, but I tell you, they are powerful in their punch. God has some great truths, and in the book of Joel, we have a prophet by that name. He's the human penman of the book, and he's to the southern kingdom. The kingdom of Judah, if you'll remember, after Solomon died, his son took the throne, there was a fuss, and there was a civil, it wasn't really a war, but there was a civil um, disunion, I guess. You had the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom generally went by the name Israel. southern kingdom went by Judah. Joel is a prophet of God sent to the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, just made up of a couple tribes. Um... He preached about the same time period as Isaiah, uh, or I'm, not, I'm sorry, not Isaiah, Elisha. It's in that same time frame. You remember Elisha was thundering the word of God in the northern kingdom. He was challenging the prophets of Baal. Remember when they did the contest 
And uh, he says, the God that answers by fire, let him be God. And of course, they, pray, they prayed and chanted and carried on, cut themselves. Of course, the false god of Baal did not um, uh, send any fire. Elijah prayed. He covered the altar in water, 12 buckets of water, and uh, prayed down, and God sent fire. You remember the story? While all that was going on up there, then he fled from... Um, uh, Jezebel, and he hid out in the wilderness, and all, all that was going on in the northern kingdom, Joel's down in the southern kingdom. He's down in Judah. And he is preaching to the people of God. Now, for the most part, the southern kingdom of Judah, they stayed pretty close to the Lord. They had their ups and downs, and they had their uh, hot and cold periods, but overall, they stayed, and they eventually uh, went astray. The northern kingdom was a mess, almost right from the start. Joel's down in the southern kingdom. He's sent by God, called of God, to preach the word of God to the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, Judah had become indifferent to the things of God. As I said, for the most part, they stayed fairly true to the Lord, but they were in a time frame now. They were coming to the end of their uh, time in freedom. They were getting farther and farther and farther from God. And Judah had become indifferent to the things of God. And what I mean by indifferent, they just didn't care anymore. There was a time when God's will for their lives was important to them. But they had gotten to a, into a condition where they really didn't care what God's will was. There was a time when the things of the Lord, the people of God and the house of worship, there was a time when their personal walk with God was very, very important to them, but they as a nation and as individuals had gotten to the point where they really didn't care whether they had their devotions that day or not. They really didn't care whether they made it to the church house or not. They really didn't care. They became indifferent to the things of God. And Joel was sent to preach to them. He was sent to a preach to a people who had lost their first love for the Lord. There was a day when the Lord uh, and God and His will was the most important things in their life. There was a day when they loved Jehovah. In fact, Jehovah, God, called them His wife. They had such a relationship. But that was gone. That love for the Lord was gone. That commitment to their God had dissipated. And they lost their first love. They became very self-centered. There was a time when if it was a choice between my will or God's will, it was always God's will, but not anymore. If I want it, I'm going to have it. I am the, thr- I am the king of my life. I sit on the throne of my life. And they become very self-centered. They had fallen in love with the things of the world. They had lived by the values of the world. And they, in spite of all of this, they were experiencing tremendous prosperity. Never had their crops produced more than what they were producing now. Never had their granaries been filled as full as they are now. And you need to understand, they were living in an agricultural economy. There was no factories, there was no high-tech businesses, it was farming. And the crops, the prosperity of the crops, the success, I should say, of the crops, determined the prosperity of their economy, the prosperity of their nation. And Judah was prosperous. The crops were tremendous and uh, the uh, harvest was uh, unimaginable and everything was going great and it produced an attitude in the heart of Judah that we really don't need God. 
Our coffers are full. Our bank accounts are large. Our needs are met. Our bills are paid. We have pretty much anything we want. Why would I need God? And I'll be very honest with you, the description of Judah in this time frame sounds a whole lot like the United States of America. Can I bring it home a little closer? Sounds a whole lot like our independent Baptist churches. Things at one time were very important to us. The things at one time, the relationship we had with our Lord at one time was very precious and was a priority in our life. And the things of God were more important to us than anything else. But God has blessed us and God has prospered us. And because of that prosperity, we've decided we really don't need the Lord so much anymore. And His will really isn't as important to us as it once was. And that was the condition that, Ju that Judah was. And God is sent by uh, Joel was sent by God to Judah to warn them that if they remained indifferent, if they would remain in their sin and continue on in the attitude and the actions and uh, that they were in right now, God's judgment was sure to come. And if you read the book of Joel, you find that his message was that the consequences of their sin could not be avoided. And though everything looked fine now, though everything was honky-dory, that's not a bad word, is it? I hope not. <laughs> I just thought of it. Sorry, Lord, if it was. But uh, though everything looked fine, though everything was going great, uh, the fact of the matter is Joel was sent by God to warn them that consequences of sin were coming. And though it may not appear like it right now, and though everything looked good and looked like they had it made for years to come, Joel said, be sure your sin will find you out. He didn't use those exact words, but that was the truth. And I want to remind us here today, I want to remind the United States of America and myself and all of us, there are sure consequences to sin. Be not deceived, God is not mocked, whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. That is a fact of history, it is the word of God. And so regardless of Judah's attitude about themselves, regardless of how proud and self-confident they had become, regardless of how independent they thought they were, there was judgment coming for their sin. And that was Joel's responsibility, to deliver that message from God to the little nation of Judah. And just as Joel had warned, God did send judgment. Now, I mentioned to my wife the other week, we were talking, and I said, you know, God very seldom, if ever, does things the way I anticipate He'll do it. You, you, you follow what I'm saying? We, we, we need God to do something. In our minds, we'll figure out how He's going to do it. We'll anticipate how He's going to do it. He never yet has done things the way I anticipated it. And sure enough, God sent judgment. And Judah had ignored the warnings, and Judah continued on in their sin and their self-centeredness and their uh, in independent spirit. And sure enough, God sent judgment, but it was, never, it was not a way that anybody had anticipated. God's judgment came in the form of an insect. God's judgment came in the form of a locust. Not one or two, 
Not a couple hundred, not a couple hundred thousand, but millions and billions of locusts invaded the land. Now remember, they, their economy was an agricultural economy. If the crops failed, their economy failed. If there was no harvest, there was no income. And I tell you, when you cut off income completely, that economy can fall awfully quickly. And when the economy falls, everything else around it comes down. And so God sent judgment, but not like they anticipated, not like anybody anticipated. God sent it in the form of a plague of locusts, and these locusts completely destroyed their crops, completely annihilated their income. In fact, the devastation was so great, it would take years, perhaps generations, before they'd ever be able to recover from what God had allowed to happen. In a very brief period of time, they had gone from independence, self-confidence, prosperity, my way or the highway, to completely shattered. I mean in a brief period of time. By the way, God can turn things around awfully quickly. Awfully quickly. I encourage you, when you're reading through your Bible, and I really believe you should read through your Bible, I encourage you when you're reading through the Bible, pay attention to how many times God changes a situation like that. In a day's period of time, God can just turn things around. That's what He did for Judah. They ignored Joel's message. They were indifferent to what Joel said God's will for them was. They didn't care. They had it all planned out. They had it all settled. They knew what the future held. They knew what they were going to do. And God changed all of it with an insect. And their prosperity turned to poverty. I want you to notice a couple things in this phrase here. And this, by the way, this message is actually an encouraging message. So hang in there till we get to the last point. But I want you to notice, first of all, the reality of man's sinful heart. The reality of man's sinful heart. Judah, as I mentioned at the beginning of the introduction, they were the people of God, as was the northern kingdom, but Judah was the better of the two nations. They had been more faithful to the Lord than the northern kingdom was. They had stayed true to the Lord than the northern kingdom had, but... They had within their breasts, they had sinful hearts. And we must never forget the reality that every one of us have awfully sinful hearts within our chest. And I'm not talking about the organ that beats blood. I'm talking about the part of us that is what we are. Our heart. And God says it is sinful. Sinful. Don't ever get the idea that you or I are beyond sin. I'm talking to folks, good number of folks this morning that profess to know Jesus Christ as Savior. Listen, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you don't still have a sinful nature. Don't ever get the idea that, well, I'm saved now, I can't sin, I, I don't sin anymore. Don't ever entertain that thought, because the reality of the matter is, Christians can and do sin. In fact, John pointed it out, First John, uh, under the inspiration of God, First John 1.8, he pointed out very clearly, he's speaking to Christians, and he says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 
And the fact of the matter is the southern kingdom of Judah could sin against God and they did. The fact of the matter is those people of God in the southern kingdom, the good kingdom, could sin against God, could come self-centered, could become seek to be independent of God. They could become cold in their love for God. They could become very worldly in their worship. And they did! Because they had sinful hearts. If we do not recognize the wickedness of our own hearts, that's where the real tragedy is. The fact of the matter is, it's not that we're pretty good people who mess up occasionally. That's not the case. Well, you know, he's a good guy, he just messes up occasionally. And we say that, and humanly speaking, that may be true, but reality... We're not good people who mess up occasionally. We're exceedingly sinful people, and anything we do that's right is only by the grace of God. Paul said, in me, that is my flesh, there dwelleth no good thing. Any sin that has ever been committed, the most heinous, perverse disgusting sin that man has, at any man has ever committed, the potential for that same sin lies in the hearts of every one of us. We're exceedingly sinful. And when we fail to see that, we are vulnerable to destruction. Our biggest pro- the biggest problem that Judah faced was not their environment. Their biggest problem really was not the little bug called the locust. Their biggest problem was not their environment. Their biggest problem was not their financial situation. Judah's biggest danger was not Babylon or Syria or Egypt. Judah's biggest danger lied in their own hearts. It was their sinful nature. And that's what destroyed them. Listen, America's problem today is not our economy. Our problem today is not Iran or North Korea. Our problem today is not uh, uh, Islamic terrorists. Our problem today is not Chavez down in Venezuela. Our problem today is we are a nation of sinful people. The problems facing our churches. Can I suggest to you our problems are not Bible perversions, our problems are not liberalism and all that. Our problem is we got sinful, sinful hearts. And that's where the danger lies. The reality of sin in our own hearts. I don't know what Judah was thinking. I don't know what processes were going through their mind that led them to get, become so disobedient to God, but I would imagine there was a point in their life where they had this idea, I could never do that. I would never fall into that condition. I tell you, as a pastor, I cringe every time I hear somebody say that to me. Years ago, I had some fairly new Christians in my office, and we were kind of doing a a type of discipleship thing, and the one person said to me, they said, oh, I would never do such and such. Today, I could take you to that person's home, and they are engaged in the very thing they told me they would never do. Do not underestimate the sinfulness of our hearts. Do not underestimate the potential of coldness and disobedience that every one of us have before our God. 
problem is a sinful heart that demands its own way. A problem is our sinful heart that demands to be in charge. Our heart is our greatest enemy. Our heart is our most deceitful enemy. Is it just me or does it seem like all politicians lie? (laughs) Now, I know they don't all. I hope we don't have any here this morning. Uh, I know they don't all, but man. Huh? Is anybody? It's like, come on, somebody tell the truth. But we got it in our hearts. Our hearts are, are deceitful. The most deceitful enemy we have is our own heart. The worst traitor that we have in our lives is our own hearts. They cannot be trusted. Our hearts must not mean to get, be negotiated with. Jeremiah, under the inspiration of God, said that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Our hearts. God says in Proverbs, he that trusts his own heart is a fool. And so the first thing we see here, this tragic story of the nation of Judah, their sinful hearts, the reality of sin in their lives, even as the people of God. The next thing I noticed is not just the reality of sin that they dealt with, but the ravages of sin. Look with me, if you would, chapter 1 of the book of Joel. Now remember, their experience was the judgment of God on their sin. One day, everything looked great. One day, the bank accounts are full. One day, the granaries, the elevators are, uh, you can't put any more grain in it. One day, the fields are producing a hundredfold. Then God sends judgment, and it's gone. And that's their economy. That's their livelihood, the judgment of God. Now, look at verse number, Joel chapter 1, look at verse number 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, ye old men. Give ear, all ye inhabitants of the land. Hath this been in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. That which the palmer worm hath left, hath the locust eaten. That which the locust hath left, hath the canker worm eaten. That which the canker worm hath left, hath the caterpillar eaten. Awake, ye drunkards, weep! And how, all ye drinkers of wine? Because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up upon my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are like the teeth of a lion, and hath, uh, ha- he hath the, che- the cheek teeth of a great lion. He's talking about the locusts there. He hath laid my vine waste and barked my fig tree. He hath, they ate the bark off the trees. He hath made it clean bare and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. Lament like a virgin, girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests, the Lord's ministers mourn. The field is wasted. The land mourneth. The corn is wasted. The new wine is dried up. The oil languisheth. Be ye ashamed, O ye husbandmen. How, O ye vine dressers? For the wheat and for the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished. The vine is dried up, and the fig tree languisheth. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree, even all the trees of the field are withered, because joy is withered away from the sons of men. Come down to verse 15. 
Alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is at hand. And as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Is not the meat cut off before your eyes, before our eyes? Yea, joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed is rotten under the clods. The gardeners are laid desolate. The barns are broken down, for the corn is withered. How do the beasts grow? The herds of cattle are perplexed because they have no pasture. Yea, the flocks of the sheep are made desolate. O Lord, to Thee will I cry, for the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame hath burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field cry unto Thee, for the rivers of water are dried up. The fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Sin brought a ravaging judgment of God on their land. We must never underestimate the ravages of sin. We must never underestimate the high cost of our disobedience to God. It brings a ravaging judgment on us. And Judah is destroyed. They're wiped out. I want to remind you, sin is not a disease. Sin is not a mistake. Sin is not a failure on our part. Sin is disobedience to God. That's what sin is. Sin is disobedience to God, and disobedience to God has awful consequences. God is serious when He deals with sin. How many folks here, you've been saved for a length of time, let's say five, at least five years or more. How many folks here, you've known the Lord for at least five years or more? The vast majority of the folks. How many folks here, I'm not going to ask you to do this, but if you needed to, you could stand up and testify that in your experience as a Christian, at some point you disobeyed God and God brought His chastening hand upon you. Can I get a witness from anybody? The chastening hand of God. One of the most terrible things to experience is the chastening hand of God. When God says, that's enough. When God says, no more, I am going to deal with your sin. It's not a pretty sight. And that's what Judah experienced. God had sent prophets and prophets. God had worked with them and tried. And finally God says, it's enough. And we just read the description of what it did. Too many Christians view disobedience to God far too lightly. And the results are tragic. Has anyone noticed that our society, our world's getting more wicked? Has anybody noticed that? I mean, we have more and more technology, and it seems like rather than the advancement we have in information and knowledge and ability, all this advancement, these abilities we've gained rather than suppressing sin and immorality and wickedness, it's simply been used by man to facilitate more ungodliness and to simply um, uh, propagate it at greater speeds than what we could before. I don't think we have any worse types of sin today than they've ever had before, but it is certainly far more accessible than it has ever been before. There was a day when some of the most perverse things you couldn't find in a back alley in New York City. Now today you can turn it on in your living room. 
So I'm not saying we have any more, more, more worse, more worse sins than what has ever been in human history. They've all been, all the sins we have today have always been there. But I'm saying we are in a day when it is so thoroughly saturated with the worst of sins. And that takes an awful, awful consequence on our society, our country, our homes, our lives. God is very serious when dealing with sin. Very, very serious. I think, and some of you medical folks could maybe verify this, but it seems like we have more and more diseases developing as we go. AIDS. Uh, some of these staph infections, they, they're getting in the hospitals that are immune to um, antibiotics. Are you with me? You know what I'm talking about? We were, this not this past week, but the week before, we were in, my wife and I were in Baltimore. Uh, she had an appointment there at, at uh, John, I almost said Brother Hopkins, at John Hopkins, Johns Hopkins, and uh, down at the hospital there. And, um, and we appreciate everyone's prayer. She's doing a lot better. Praise the Lord for that. But uh, while we were there, I noticed everywhere they had posters of things about safety and about, um, um, uh, what's the word I want? About being clean and, um, what? Not insulate. Sterilizing uh, hands. And they had these posters. I don't know if she remembers. They had these posters, five steps we promised to take. And every department went to, they had this sign, five steps we promised to take. Five steps we promised to take. And you know what's happening? Because there's diseases are being developed and within the medical area, there's more and more we have to do not to isolate ourselves from these diseases, but insulate ourselves. They have to get in and be able to deal with the disease. They have to be able to deal with the person, but they insulate themselves. So they wash with very specific chemicals. They wear gloves and masks and, and all the garb and everything to protect themselves from the ravages of that disease. Well, just like in these last days as diseases and the Bible term is pestilence are becoming more and more, even so you and I as Christians, we live in a society where spiritual disobedience, sin is becoming more and more prevalent. And we cannot isolate ourselves. We don't go to some mountain and build a cave and crawl in there and try and isolate ourselves from the world. We have a responsibility to take the gospel into all the world, but we insulate ourselves from the sin of this world. And we're very, very careful. We understand how sinful our own heart is. And we be very, very careful that we don't allow the sin of this world to affect us and to uh, influence us. And so we take precautions. Why? Because of the ravage of sin. Judah did not protect themselves. They ran headlong into their disobedience to God and it ravaged their country. My, la- my third thought, real quickly, I want us to notice not just the reality of sin in our lives and not just the ravages of sin, but I want us to notice the impossibility of recovering wasted years. Now come back to chapter 2, if you would, and look with me at verse 25. And I, this is the Lord speaking to Israel. Now, this is is a great verse. There's great encouragement in this verse, but I feel like I need to explain something here so we don't misunderstand what the Lord's saying. He says, I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten. 
Now, we need to understand it is impossible to have time that has gone past to have that restored. You follow what I'm saying? It is impossible to recover the years that are lost. Now, God uses that term there. We'll have to explain what he means. But I want to point out here, we cannot literally restore the wasted years. We can't bring that time back. There are no... Boy, I I wish you'd get this. There are no second chances in living life. You and I cannot go back again and relive the year 2007 if we wasted that year in sin, if we wasted that year for ourselves, if we wasted that year in our relationship with God. We cannot go back and relive that year over again. It is gone. And we cannot go back into our young years, the years of our youth, when so many of us foolishly wasted those years and we lived for ourselves and we, and, uh, we lived in sin and we did, ignored the things of God. And I tell you today, I would give both my right and left arm if I could go back somehow and relive those years for God. If I could relive those years according to the principles of Scripture. But I can't go back and neither can you. No restoring those years. We have one shot at life. And if we blow it, we can't go back and do it over again. We have, and we have one opportunity of youth. And you can get all the Botox shots you want. You can get all the uh, uh, plastic surgery you want. You're still an old person. Amen. Man alive, some of these folks, they're 65 years old. They look like they're 27. But they're still 65 years old. That's not as old as it used to be, by the way. My point is this. Young people, if you waste your teenage years, you waste your youth, can't ever go back and do it over again. It's gone. And every person you meet over 30 years old, just about every one of them, will say to you, I wish I could go back and do it right. But you can't. When God says, I'll restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten, He's not saying you're going to get to go back and live it over again. You're going to get to go back and make things right. That's not what He's saying. You can't do that! And when we waste a day, when we live a day for ourselves rather than the Lord, that day is gone. And we live a week and a year and a decade and a lifetime And we don't live it for the purpose that God has created us. We don't live it for uh, within God's will for our lives. It's gone. The impossibility of recovering wasted years. Don't think that you can waste a year and then go back and replace it. Don't think you can just disobey God and live in sin and then somehow I'm going to go back and I'll replace it all doesn't happen that way. It doesn't work that way. 
You waste a week or a month or a year, a decade in bitterness and self-centeredness and unforgiveness and self-righteousness or whatever sin you want to suggest you wasted in a time, you never get to go back and do it over again. On top of the fact it brings ravaging judgment of God on ourselves. You say, Brother Levin, I thought this was an encouraging message. It is. Look at the verse. This is the Lord speaking. And I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. Oh no, I can't go back and relive my 15, 16, 17, 18th year of my life. I can't live it over again. And years since then... But God says, I can restore to you that which sin took away. Look at verse number 26. Ye shall eat in plenty and be what? Satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be ashamed. Look at verse 27. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. What's he say? God is saying that though we cannot get back the days and the years we wasted in sin, there is hope that God can restore the lost blessings and fruit from those years. We can never get the years and time back. But if you and I We'll humble ourselves before the Lord, repent of our sin, and yield our wills to God's will. God said all those years of blessing that you missed, that sin stole, I can restore that to you. And though yesterday's gone, and maybe I wasted it in sin and self, yet today I can know fulfillment and joy and blessing of God. Come over, look, look with me, Wood, chapter 2. Look over there at verse 12. This is God speaking to Judah. This is the qualifications for getting those blessings that we lost because of our sin. Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Turn unto the Lord your God. For He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth Him of the evil. What's He saying? He's saying, listen, if you'll come to Me, acknowledge your sin, confess it, forsake it, repent from it, humble yourself before Me. I can take you after sin has ravished you, and I can bless you, and I can restore you, and you can be satisfied in life, and you can find fulfillment in life. I read this verse about a month and a half ago. I don't know what, it wasn't my devotion, I was just reading around and I came across it, and man, it stirred my heart. And I looked back over my life, and I saw periods of time where I wasted it. I began to weep. I came over to the church here, and I came to the altar. I said, God, I can't ever go back. But God didn't can you please restore that which sin took away? 
the blessings and the joy that I could have known. And that sin took it all away. God, can you, can you give it back to me? I know I can't get those years. But God, can you give me the joy and the blessing? What it would have been like if I had lived for you? Can I have that? God says, I can restore to you that which the locust has taken. But the whole condition is humbling ourselves before the Lord. God, you're right, I'm wrong. I repent of it, God. I yield myself to you. You do with me as you see fit. And God can restore that. Isn't that a blessing? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask, Lord, that you would help us to see ourselves as we really are. God, help us not to have any kind of